This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Good morning. Thank you for being here on a beautiful sunny day. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll have some sunshine in here today as well. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about. Uh, so, when I first came to Zen back in 2003, I had been practicing for about nine years. I'd done long retreats and uh, and my first Zen retreat, my first Sashin was with uh, it was the end. Of, it was Rahatsu Sashin that uh, was being led by Michael Wenger, and Michael had spent the entire practice period talking about the Lotus Sutra, um, but the uh, the Sashin he only spoke about one thing the whole time, all seven days which was the bodhisattva never disparage. And for me, that was, one, it was, it was super key for me to understand, oh, this is how I want to be in the world. And it turned something for me. Now, I don't remember anything that Michael said. Um, I remember being in the Buddha Hall and him playing. There's a song done by Greg Fain and uh, Ben Gustin, I think, called Our Hero, which is about that. And it was really interesting to be about day three or four of Sashin and Michael Wenger plays this music in the Buddha Hall. <laughs> and you're kind of going, wait, I don't think this is normal. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the Bodhisattva Never Disparage. Uh, and so I'm going to back up a little bit and talk about Bodhisattvas. Mahayana, the school of Buddhism that um, Zen finds itself sort of uh, in the middle of, uh, is often called the Bodhisattva path or the Bodhisattva school because we like us some Bodhisattvas. Um, and we have lots of them. If you hang around Zen institutions long enough, you'll get to know the big three, which are Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, and Samantabhadra, the Bodhisattva of Activity. And I think there's a a couple of ways you can think about bodhisattvas. One is, is you can think of them as um, deities or, or icons of a religion or a practice or an ideal, right? So they become these sort of uh, objects of worship that allow us to focus our attention on them in some kind of way to help bring about our own liberation, right? Um, and and. You know, we do that in meal chants, and we do that in a variety of ways. I think the other way we can think about bodhisattvas are as avatars, as guideposts that 
orient us to the world in particular kinds of ways and orient our practice in particular kinds of ways. So when I want to really dive into compassion practice and, and try and work on perfecting my compassion a little bit more, I'll spend some time hanging out with Avalokiteshvara. I'll, you know, I'll think about the, the places that she or he are mentioned in. The interesting thing about Avalokiteshvara is that it's both female and male. So, um, but the, you know, you can use this as a sort of guidepost for like, oh, I'm going to focus on this for a little while and move myself in this direction, right? And that's how I use bodhisattva practice. I think of them in terms of, oh, I want to practice compassion more. So let me hang out with, you know, or when I'm thinking about ethics and, and sort of the activity of my practice and, and sort of digging into being a better person rather than just thinking better thoughts. You know, Manjushri, when I want to really work on cutting through some of my delusions a great practice so um, you know and then we also have lesser known ones like Jizo right Jizo is very popular I think um, particularly because Jizo is um, sometimes thought of as the Bodhisattva of death because they're the um, they're the sort of protector of travelers and um, and also of children particularly fetuses that have been miscarried or aborted. And so um, in nunneries and Nesotos and, and other places around the world, um, there's a ceremony every year for women to come and honor the fetuses that they've lost. And then there's uh, the Bodhisattva never disparage who comes to us from the chapter 21 of the Lotus Sutra. Um, and it's a really super long chapter, and I'm not going to read a lot from it. But basically, this Bodhisattva's whole, you know, apparently was a monk in, you know, ancient history, and um, before we knew anything, I guess. And, um, and their practice was to... Um, was not to sit. They didn't spend a lot of time studying sutras. They just sort of walked around and bowed to everybody and said, I will never disparage you or hurt you in any way because I know you're Buddha and I love you. As someone who has problems with my body and so sitting can sometimes be really difficult, um, as somebody who uh, I like to study and, and think theory and intellectually, but I really practice because I want to suffer less. So I'm really interested in this idea of like, how can I practice? So I'm not really interested in studying as much as, despite my degrees and everything else, um, but really in like some kind of practical action. I want to be in the world in a particular kind of way. And my practice is that, right? So my practice studies helpful. Meditation, zazen is super helpful. But when it comes down to it, my practice 
is to be in the world in a particular kind of way. And the great thing about the Bodhisattva Never Disparage is that it is he, he offers us an opportunity to just pick up one small little thing and do it repeatedly, much like Zazen, right? Like we sit down and we take a pos our posture as best we can and we let go of what's happening and we just allow the moment to come. And then we do that repeatedly for years and years and years and years. And when you do it over a sustained time, what happens is, is, is you start to change. And when you pick up this practice of, of, I see Buddha in you. I see Buddha in everyone. And you do it sustained over time. You become different. And like most of our practices, it has to start first with ourselves. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a really great book about the Lotus Sutra called Opening the Heart of the, Lo of the Cosmos. And in it, when he talks about the Bodhisattva Never Disparage, he says, this Bodhisattva removes the feeling of worthlessness and low self-esteem in people. How can I be Buddha? How can I attain enlightenment? There's nothing in me except suffering. And I don't know how to get free of my own suffering, much less help others. I am worthless. Many people have these kinds of feelings and they suffer more because of them. Never disparaging Bodhisattva works to encourage and empower people who feel this way to remind them that they too have Buddha nature. They too are a wonder of life and they too can achieve what Buddha achieves. This is the great message of hope and confidence. This is the practice of Bodhisattva in the action dimension. I think we all come to practice because we're suffering in some kind of way. And I think we get lots of ideas and tools about how to meet that suffering and how to hold that suffering, how to think differently about that suffering. But when I first read this, I, I, was, I was actually <laughs> I was on a bus on my way to school when I read that paragraph the first time and I started crying on the bus on my way to school. the crying of recognition. Because, you know, I still think, oh, you know, I'm a weird tattooed punk guy who, you know, gets angry and yells at people and um, has resentments and, <laughs> you know, sometimes acts unskillfully. I cuss a lot. I can't be Buddha. You have great Buddha nature, and I can often find things to be wondered about in other human beings. But sometimes when I look in the mirror and I look at my own life, all I see is the landscape of suffering. There's an old koan a monk goes to his teacher and says, 
what is Buddha? And the teacher just responds, this very mind is Buddha. See, the great thing about Zen practices is that we get to, we get liberation because and with our suffering. We grow out of the mud. It's all of those things that I dislike about myself or I think are problematic or, oh, I'm a horrible priest or I'm a horrible practitioner or I'm a this or I'm a that. Like all of those things, that's our enlightenment. That brings us to this moment. And the Bodhisattva Never Disparage says to us, you are Buddha, I love you over and over and over again. This moment is our moment of liberation. We don't have to wait for something special to happen. We don't have to have some deep intellectual conversation with our teacher. We don't have to wait until I don't yell at that person that I want to yell at. This moment, exactly as it is, is liberation. The other really important piece about this story is that at some point, all of the other monks get angry at the Bodhisattva Never Disparage, and they start throwing rocks and sticks at him, which I think is really funny, because sticks and stones may break my bones, and words will never hurt me. So they start, um, they, they start to abuse him. And his response was to move to a safe distance, turn and bow to them and say, I will never disparage you. I know you're Buddha. I love you. The reason that's important is that he moved to a safe distance. I think sometimes that we, uh, we think that we have to, in the midst of people <laughs> doing mean things or horrible things or abusing us, that we have to sort of love them. And that's what compassion is, or that's what this request is, right? Let me see Buddha in them. And I think that this, story and this part of the story tells us, no, <laughs> not at all. You can love people from 300 feet away. I love people who are states away. I'm not asking them to change. I'm not asking them to be different. I keep myself at a safe distance and I love them. And maybe through the act of my love, they could be changed or not. But that's not the point. So we don't, the request is not to be subject to abuse and defilement and, and to let people beat us up. And I think it's really great that that's included in this story, because I think sometimes we miss that piece about compassion. We miss that piece about what it means to be in the world 
loving people. claims that Suzuki Roshi once said, you're all perfect, and you could use a little improvement. I think that improvement that he's talking about comes from sustained activity, sustained engagement with our practice. It also comes from knowing that this very mind, this moment, is our liberation. We don't have to go somewhere else to be healed. We don't have to go somewhere else to be free. We don't have to do a special dance. This story even tells us we don't even have to meditate, although it's helpful. But we don't have to meditate. We can be in the world in particular kinds of ways, and that will bring about our own liberation. For me, back in 2003, this was great. It was such a gift. And it continues to be. It continues to be that piece of what is it that I want to be in the world? What does it mean to be a priest? What does it mean to be a monk in the world? What do I have to offer? And for a very long time, I didn't think I had anything to offer. Some days I still don't think I have anything to offer. But then I sit down and I catch my breath. I quiet my mind, I settle my body, and the Bodhisattva Never Disparage appears and says, I love you. Thank you very much for your attention. And we can take, I think we have time for questions, yes? It's not one of my gifts. Um, <laughs> and I didn't bring a tape of it. So uh, I do actually have it on a, on a MP3 that sometimes it ends up in my rotation of music that plays in my house. And, and I sort of go, oh, yeah. And it takes me right back to being in the Buddha Hall with Michael Wanger and all of these people that I didn't know. Um, yeah. So. I, I, I think you can get it off of Zen Center's website, or Neil might even have it, I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs>
Stephen. Thank you. Uh, really appreciate the, uh, the instruction that he walked 300 yards, you know, mm -hmm. distance. And I wonder, you know, when we, when we do these other instructions and so forth, we say, if your body hurts, um, sit with it first, notice what arises, and mm -hmm. if it's just a distraction. And then if it's not, by all means, move. And, mm -hmm. and so I think the same thing always strikes me with, with that, that part of your teaching, it, that, um, you know, how do we know? Um, I think I spent a lot of years in my life moving away from everybody to a safe distance. Right. You know, if you said hello the wrong way, I moved to a safe distance. Right. Away. Um, and then if you weren't smiling when I turned around and looked back, I built a glass wall in between us so nothing could get through it. And, and so I wonder how you've come to, in, in some of the amazing work that you do, finding that safe distance um, not as a place to turn or to run mm -hmm. away to, but as, as an appropriate place. Right. I think that Stephen's question was to how do we know what, when it's right to move away to a safe distance and when to turn towards what's happening. I don't think we always know. Um, but I think if we, if we can settle our mind and our body, those kinds of answers, the, those kinds of moments become clear. So, um, you know, we live in a time right now where there's a, a huge amount of suffering and we have access to it, like in unimaginable ways. Like I'm from the generation when you had to wait for the news to come on at night. And, you know, it was often softened up by the time you received it. Now we have videos of violence and terror and all kinds of things in the world. And, and I think sometimes it's great because we need to see that. We need to know that that's happening. Because that inspires us to action. But we can also get trapped there. And I think the key is to watch my heart. Um, when I'm watching my heart, I know when my heart's overwhelmed and I need to reach out to my friends and say, oh, just tell me something good that's happening in the world. Or let me see cute little puppies and kittens, right? Or I can see When, when my heart says move, my heart says, no, you don't need to turn towards that. Because that's the other thing, right? Like we can only do what we can do. We can only be who we can be. We don't have to solve the world's problems. I just have to do my part, right? And so knowing that, and so yeah, things like meditation help me get in touch with my own heart because that's, that's where those answers come from. And luckily, I have tools to get me to a place where I can hear that. And also, I have tools that tell me when that's being deceitful, right? Because I still have delusion. <laughs> um, you know, I, I keep a, a spare white charger in my closet just so that I can come riding out on it and be the hero. 
Um, and that's not necessary, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, so uh, trusting our heart, trusting our own experience of this moment, trusting that we are Buddha. You know, the great part of our ordination ceremonies, in faith that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. And also trust our Sangha, trust the people around us. You know, they'll tell us too. Girl, you're kind of stuck there. Get a little work done. <laughs> you know, you're one of those people in my life, right? Like you just, that's what we do for each other. Girl, fix that stuff, it's messy. You're gonna regret that. Don't, you don't want to go down that road, right? So um, yeah, trusting our own heart, trusting our Sangha, trusting our people. Hojo-san. Uh, one uh, striking difference between, say, Western New Testament spirituality mm -hmm. and, and Buddhism is that although there are numerous Sanskrit words for love, Buddha doesn't seem to use them. Oh. Um, uh, compassion, right. friendliness. Mm -hmm. You know, Maitri, Karuna, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, could you elaborate a little bit on there's a bridge there somewhere. When I first started to practice Zen in particular, Thich Nhat Hanh used to really tick me off because he uses the word love in place of things like karuna and compassion and those things. But I, I, I think that the more I sit with these kinds of ideas, the more I think that my brain understands love for other people and love for myself that's um, like that's the social social sort of programming I got right is that um, compassion equals love that friendliness you know you love your friends you love your family you and 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 um, and that there's a, a variety and a long breath of what love actually means. Um, so I think that, you know, in the social constructed realm that we live in here in the United States of America, there, he's, Thich Nhat Hanh is right. There's a really, that's a way we can understand that, that sort of makes sense. It's shorthand so that I don't have to explain Karuna, Maitri, Kalyanamita, you know, these connections that are in, in some ways are actually even deeper than a Western idea of what love is, right? Like spiritual friendship, I think, is an amazing concept. And when you really sort of dig into what it is, reading what the Buddha taught and other, you know, sages taught about that, you realize like it's, it's kind of a magic experience that love doesn't really even touch because it's deeper than that even. But, it, you know, we, <laughs> we only have so much time and it, we need shorthand. And that's a shorthanded way that we, because not everybody wants to spend hours delving into 
dense text learning what Kalyanamita means, right? Um, they just want to, they just want something they can taste. And so my frustration with Thich Nhat Hanh became a lot less. And I'm much more comfortable using words like love and trust and faith, even though those aren't the Sanskrit words. I also think that we can get caught in theory. You know, my, uh, my uh, ordination teacher loves theory, and so oftentimes we'll be talking, and I'll have to go, what does that have to do with my life? <laughs> right? Like, he's talking about some grand thing, and I'm like, look, I'm just trying to put food on the table. And I love theory, and I love all of those things, but at the end of the day, how do I wake up in the morning and not want to either kill myself or everyone else? Not hate my body? How can I get closer to some kind of connection to this moment as it is unfiltered and without a whole bunch of my constructed opinions about it? So that would be my response to that question. Hi. Hi. What's your name? Ron. Hi, Ron. I just wanted to thank you for giving us something we can taste. Uh. Um, what you're saying makes sense. You know, theory is wonderful, poetic. The stories are poetic. The sutras are poetic. Mm -hmm. Everything is, the iconography is beautiful. Mm -hmm. But the real questions are what I know I am here for mm -hmm. answers to the real questions that similar, not dissimilar mm -hmm. to the you. Posed. So thank you for giving us something we can taste. Thank you, Ron. I think we have time for one quick one, or we can go eat sugar. <laughs> Let's eat some sugar. Thank you all very much.